Hey, I'm Kathy Walker from the Girls' Day School Trust, the GDST. We're a family of 25 girls' schools across the UK. We were founded by women for girls 150 years ago, and to this day, we remain experts in educating and inspiring girls. On each episode of Raise Their Up, we welcome guests who are experts in their fields to share their insights and to create the ultimate guide to raising and empowering girls, women, and everybody else. On this episode, I'm enjoying a conversation with TikToker, author, and sex educator, Millie Evans. I think what should be reassuring to parents is that loads of evidence has shown that young people who have comprehensive, inclusive, positive sex education tend to delay their first sexual experiences. And when they do have their first sexual experiences, they are more likely to be positive and they are more likely to be safe. Millie grew up with sex being openly discussed, given that her parents owned a sex toy shop. And when she was still in school, the teenage Millie started campaigning for compulsory sex education. As the go-to expert for young people, her videos on TikTok have more than 6 million likes. From the GDST, this is Raise Her Up, and this is Millie Evans. And I think again, one of I the thought, things what's going through her? That's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. Raise, Raise her, her up. Millie Evans, we are completely thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us on Raise Her Up. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this conversation. Millie, tell us about how at the age of 22, you've come to be such an influential figure in the landscape of sex education. What does it mean to you to be the go-to for so many people and, and not just young people either for information about, about sex and relationships? Uh, it's, it feels like it's come out of nowhere, um, but it really hasn't. I've been sort of campaigning for better sex ed and I've been volunteering and researching and just trying to consume as much information as I possibly can about sex ed for years now since my early teens. Um, and now it's amazing to actually be able to share that with so many young people. It's so amazing to get such a positive response from the people that I really want to help directly. Um, I think before now, I've kind of felt like I'm just kind of shouting into the void, just hoping that someone will listen. And thanks to you know the algorithms of social media, finally that is happening. I'm finally able to actually reach the young people that I want to help. And for me, it's just like a dream come true. You say thanks to the algorithms. I mean, it is thanks to the algorithms, but it's also thanks to the fact that you are bloody brilliant. You are so good <laughs> at what you do. Thank you. You take the stigma and the embarrassment and the kind of ick factor out of it. You know, the first couple of times it can be a bit shocking for someone who is my age, for example. Um, but actually, once you get past that, it is exactly what young people need. They need to be able to ask these tricky and embarrassing questions without the sense of shame or, or fear of the response, surely. Yeah, I mean, that's really good to hear that that's how it's coming across. Um, I want to talk about sex in a more practical, destigmatizing way. And for me, Existing in a space which is sex positive has been quite difficult at times because I'm not someone who's a particularly sexual person. and I don't feel comfortable talking about things in an overly sexualized way. And I think lots of people who are trying to talk about things in a sex positive way take sex positive and think that that means they have to sexualize it or that for them, that's what that means. And that's absolutely fine. But I wanted to kind of provide an alternative resource and the positive feedback I have had from young people 
has been that my content is maybe one of the first times they've heard sex or relationships talked about in a sensible way, um, not in a boring way, but in a way that just feels accessible and less scary and easier for them to understand and engage with. And that's exactly what I wanted from it. Brilliant. So let, let's go back to that sense of talking about sex in a way that is almost detached from the act of sex itself. And you've talked openly about your experience of being autistic and how that influenced your interest in sex, especially in the context of school. Yeah. So for people who don't know that much about autistic people, lots of us have got what's called special interests. And special interests are different than many neurotypical people's passions and things that they love. A special interest is something that can kind of fuel an autistic person. It's a really intense love of a subject or, you know, a TV show. For me, it is sex education and it's kind of become my lifeblood um, from the age of sort of 13 onwards. Um, I became very interested in sex education kind of because of what my parents do for a living. We were having really great conversations at home, but then that was kind of the springboard. I then really took a deep dive into all of the issues that were going on with sex education, not just here in the UK, but also around the world, um, sort of looking into what campaigns were going on, what I could get involved with. And that really started this intense passion and interest that now has fortunately become a career. Um, but being autistic, I really think is totally central to that. I have such an acute interest in it. And it is quite clinical sometimes. I'm looking, I'm sort of looking at sex education as like an observer rather than as someone who feels all the time like they're in it, um, which I think is a different perspective. And I think what's interesting is that lots of concepts that people have talked about millions of times, you know, whether it's consent or first time sex, I think I do have a skill and I do think it's because I'm autistic of being able to look at that go, okay, here's what everyone said about it before. How can I pull that apart and then put it back together in a way that makes sense to me and hopefully to other people? Um, and I think that is, you know, something I'm grateful for with just the way that my brain works. Mm. So talking about this, this uh, need to be open and to destigmatize and to create a safe space. When it comes to the sex talk, who should start that conversation and when? Some parents might feel you're like, I, you know, I don't want to put ideas into their head, you know, and, and while others, you know, they, they might want to make their child aware of sex and sexual relationships and the complications that they can bring. But what's your take on that? I think what should be reassuring to parents is that loads of evidence from around the world has shown that young people who have comprehensive, inclusive, positive sex education tend to delay their first sexual experiences. And when they do have their first sexual experiences, they are more likely to be positive and they are more likely to be safe. So that should be reassuring. If you do prepare your young person for the future, chances are it's not going to mean that they are going to jump straight into wanting to have sex and relationships. It means you're going to give them the space to actually think about what they want from those things and actually look at those things with a bit of critical thought rather than rushing into it or taking advice from their friends. Um, as far as parents are concerned, I think that many parents and teachers are naive to the conversations that young people have at school. In the common room, in the classroom, we are talking, or at least at my school, we were talking about sex and relationships all the time. And so much misinformation was going around, so much terrible advice. Um, and if I were a parent, I would want to get in there before 
my child could receive that information. Um, and I think definitely that's what my parents did. They came at the subject of sex and relationships and bodies before I was reaching the stage of having an interest or a need to know those things, um, just so that I was prepared. So even periods, knowing about periods two or three years before I actually started my period was great. It didn't mean that I was scared about it um, or that I was thinking about it all the time. It just meant that when it happened, I wasn't freaking out about it. But that doesn't have to be a conversation because I get that conversations are pretty intimidating, especially with teenagers, if you're not quite sure how to interact with your teenager. Um, One of the great ways that my parents introduced a lot of these subjects to me was through books. There are loads of great sex ed books you can buy online for various different ages. um, And that really worked for us. I have to say at this point, um, obviously your book, um, Honest, Everything They Don't Tell You About Sex, Relationships and Bodies is out now. And I have been leaving that lying around my house as well, as well as proactively showing it to my daughters. So um, I just wanted to let you know that while we're on the topic. Um, It's really interesting what you say as well about how parents, teachers and carers are naive to the conversations that are happening because I was up to all sorts that my parents didn't know about when I was that age. So I'm just going to go with the assumption that my children will be talking and behaving in the same way. And I'm not even talking about behaving in a really kind of off the scale, sexual kind of crazy way. I'm just saying that you can never know everything as a parent, can you? No. And I think it's totally understandable that parents do want to protect their young people. But I think it's really important to examine where are those worries coming from? You know, maybe it is that you yourself had bad experiences or that you wish that you had waited longer or you had to learn through experience rather than through education. Or it might be even down to things like, you know, internalised misogyny and, you know, worries about patriarchy and things around gender. It, It can be so many different things. I think it's really important to kind of examine that and ask yourself, am I making these assumptions because of myself or am I making them about what my child is actually like. Um, I know for my parents, they kind of did want to kind of enforce some rules about dating and sex, but realised quite quickly that I just didn't have any interest in any of those things to begin with. So restricting me from being around boys was only going to harm friendships rather than protecting me from exploring sex and relationships at an early age. Um, And I think that it's difficult for parents to let go a little bit, but I think stepping back is a really important way to allow your young person to have some independence and be a young person. But also if you too tightly try and enforce rules and restrictions, you're only going to stop them from coming to you if there is a problem. I think it's really important to have this atmosphere of openness and give them, let them know that whatever happens, they can still come to you. They shouldn't be afraid they're going to get into trouble if something does go wrong. Carrying on with that thought... I think sometimes we can worry about our young people starting to have sexual relationships before they feel ready. And you've just said, you know, that good sex ed does result with young people having the confidence to delay having sex until they feel ready. But how do we talk about what feeling ready means? And within that, we we need to broach the issue of consent or coercive control of being talked into something as well, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of my favourite subjects to talk about, um, because since I started talking about what ready feels like on social media, I've just had the most overwhelmingly positive response, not just from people who haven't yet had sex, but also from people who have had sex and are now going, wait, am I actually ready for these experiences that I'm already having? Was I ready for experiences I've had in the past? My philosophy 
on virginity and first times is that I hate the idea of virginity because it's a big, scary, overwhelming, patriarchy-filled concept. I just don't like it at all. So I like to talk about first times. I like to talk about first times, plural. So I don't think that everybody has one big first time where they just bash through every kind of sexual act or sexual experience they could possibly have. There are loads of different first times with different things, with different people that we might have. You might have lots of first times with one person. You might have have them with many people. But I think it's important to take away like the power of this one big, scary first time. And then it comes to talking about readiness. What I think we tend to do is think a lot about first times in terms of age. So the age of consent, I think that's really important for protecting young people. But then we also have to think about does being over the age of 16 mean that I am now ready to start having sex? Quite possibly not. It definitely doesn't mean that you have to start looking at those things. And I think if most people sort of sat for a second and thought, what would ready look and feel like for me? Many people would delay their first experiences or rethink experiences they have already had. So I have come up with like a big old checklist right from things like, do I understand consent? boundaries? Am I able to communicate those things? Do I know what I would like? Would I be able to communicate that with someone? All the way up to things like, would I need to drink alcohol in order to feel confident enough to have sex with another person? Maybe that is an indicator that you're not yet ready. And also the feelings that kind of come up for you when you do think about having sex for the first time. Do I feel excited or do I feel scared and nervous? Um, Those are all things that I think it's really important to ask yourself. But I think we put a lot of emphasis on age as a determining factor in readiness rather than these actual questions about what ready would look and feel like. And it's going to look and feel like something different for everyone. Oh my goodness. That That is, I'm just kind of unpacking and, and kind of thinking about everything you've just said. The idea of multiple first times is just such a wonderful reframing of something that can be really, really difficult I find it quite moving to hear you talk about that. And then the idea of that checklist, I mean, obviously it might be really helpful to have it written down, actually to have a checklist, but those are such sensible questions. And I think this is, again, to go back to what I said at the start of this episode, your practical approach to this, Millie, is such a breath of fresh air, especially to someone like me and I'm sure other people listening whose sex education was so very, very different to um, that of people who are half our age or the children that we're bringing up now. In each episode of Raise That Up, we hear from a member of our GDST family to gain their perspective on the matter that we are discussing. And this week, I am joined by Carla Tonks, who is head of PSHE at Shrewsbury High School. So Carla, we're here speaking to Millie Evans, and I know that you are familiar with her book and her work. It'd be great to hear from you about how you incorporate sex and relationships education into your curriculum at Shrewsbury. The way that we do it at Shrewsbury is incredibly unique and we are so lucky. We have this amazing thing called Period X. So in the middle of the week, everyone is off timetable and we are engaged in doing all that we can that looks at our main pillars, which are character, endeavour and achievement. 
our focus is really on feelings because we know that actually when it comes to it, our young people are not going to be reciting facts. They're not going to be holding on to that, you know, can I quote the Sexual Offences Act and the law of consent? No, hopefully they're going to feel empowered to make the right choices. So when they are, you know, the condom's on and it looks like sex is actually happening, that they feel empowered, that they can say, yeah, absolutely. Do you know what? My heart's thumping, my head's pounding. I don't think I really want this. And that's okay. And that's healthy. Throw the condom away, go and order a pizza and have a conversation because that's much, much, much better. We've always wondered questions about sex, haven't we? We've always wanted to know. One of our staff trainers, she started with that first question as, where did you get your information from? And that was asking the staff. So I wonder if you can imagine what amazing word cloud came up. Sister, older cousin, Jackie magazine, Cosmo, position of the fortnight. You know, it was all there. Some said parents and, and mostly that was mother. So I think once you frame that teaching with this in mind, you begin to see that actually there's a real impact to when you're not being given the right information. And so once we do that and we frame our teaching within that, that means that our students hopefully can live much healthier and happier lives and have really quality, good relationships. So very recently, um, we were delivering a lesson on sending nudes and I had some amazing um, kids who came up to me at the end and said, this is brilliant but we need more of this. And actually they know that the younger pupils, as soon as they get their phone, they get that unsolicited pick. They said, no, we need you to be able to do something about that. We need them to share that. And it was lovely to witness that kind of open idea, but actually that lovely that they wanted to kind of share a little bit more. And with our period X timetable, what's great about it is because the whole school are doing it at the same time, we can take those moments we can say actually let's respond to this has happened today this has happened now so i might teach the same stuff to four groups but that lesson will be different every single time because they've got different understandings and it's their learning and it really is important that it's their lesson your upbringing which sounds like it was very open very non-judgmental very accepting it's very interesting to hear that your parents had a rule that no partners could sleep over because I'm sure that that is the million dollar question also for many parents who's, who, who maybe have teens or older teens. Should parents be allowing boyfriends and girlfriends to stay over? Uh, yeah, it's a big question, isn't it? Um, I think when it comes to my parents, it's worth remembering that I am their oldest child and they were very much figuring out the whole parenting thing. Um, you know, as I was the first one going through puberty and being a teenager. Um, so there was kind of an initial rule of, you know, we're not having partners sleep over. Fortunately for them, I didn't have any partners to for them to worry about. Um, but that kind of became something that was renegotiated when my brothers became teenagers because they had they did want to explore sex and relationships a bit more. Um, also, it's worth bearing in mind that we are a pretty queer household. So I myself am queer. I also have a queer brother. So what relationships looked like for us weren't, you know, the girls bringing over their boyfriends or the girls heading over to their boyfriends or whatever. It looked kind of different and it gets a lot more complicated with queerness because how do you differentiate? How does a parent figure out whether or not it's a friend or a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Um, and so... That definitely complicated it enough that my parents kind of relaxed and just wanted to have sensible conversations about sex and also about what it is to be 
in a respectful household that, you know, as your family, we don't want to hear anyone having sex. Ideally, we don't want to be running into people <laughs> half dressed in the corridors. Um, so those were kind of the conversations that evolved into. What I would say is that <laughs> trying to force a young person to not have sex with their partner, or at least forcing them to not have sex with their partner in your house does risk pushing them into more dangerous and unsafe scenarios, potentially illegal scenarios, having to try and find quiet moments, private spaces that maybe aren't as comfortable or safe. You know, there aren't adults around, there aren't people they can go to for help if something does, you know, worst case scenario, go wrong. And the people that I know whose parents were kind of open and kind of had boundaries within allowing their young person to have partners over I think seemed to have the most positive relationships with sex because it wasn't that sex was being forced out of the house. It wasn't sex having to be hidden away or only be done when parents were out of the house. It was something that they could kind of have a much more healthy relationship with. Um, and I would have liked that atmosphere as well. Um, interesting to hear that you feel that, you know, your own experiences of being a queer young person kind of impacted on those attitudes at home. Should we be differentiating between partners in same-sex relationships? I have one friend who has a gay daughter and by her own admission, much more permissive about allowing her to have her girlfriend stay over because there wasn't that pregnancy risk. I think that situations like this kind of force parents to acknowledge and examine all the reasons why they are scared of their child having sex and having relationships. Because I could just go, you're not viewing queer relationships as as valid because you have all these different rules for them. But I think it's worth asking, why do you feel less comfortable with a heterosexual relationship with a heterosexual partner coming into the house versus a queer partner? And there might be, again, so many reasons for this. And I have so much compassion for parents because I'm not a parent myself. And if I was in that situation, I would also be really confused. From the perspective of a queer young person. I always wanted my relationships to be seen as valid as if I were in a relationship with a man. And so for me, it would be important that those relationships were treated equally. It's a similar thing that you don't want your young person to feel like they are being forced to sneak around because having been on the other side of that and having to have pretended that I was someone's friend when I was their girlfriend, that is a really uncomfortable position to be put in. If you can, this just atmosphere of honesty, I just think is so much more helpful. And again, having boundaries within your rules that can be the same for everyone. I mean, it's understandable that you might have different boundaries with your child if they did have a partner where there was a risk of pregnancy. If you would say, look, it's fine if you're going to have sex in the house, but please use contraception, please use barrier methods, just be careful. If anything comes up, you know, contraception doesn't work let me know and we will go and get you sorted with some emergency contraception. Like that's an extra boundary that you might have in place. It's also worth, I don't know if there's something we, we can talk about on here, but I think it's important when you have got queer young people to talk to them about sex toys because that is an important part of queer sex. And so that's something else that can be a boundary you might want to offer. Like, hey, if you do want to talk about those things with me, that's absolutely fine. If you don't, also cool. On my end, at least as a young person, I don't think there's any problem with enforcing sort of boundaries and communicating those. Let's return to your book for a moment. Um, there's a really interesting chapter in your book uh, about porn. There's a very worrying statistic that the average age at which a young person first views porn in the UK is 11. 
not because they're actively searching, but you know, there might be an older sibling or there might be some innocent Googling, etc. And your book touches on how porn is not realistic or representative in terms of body image, the age of the actors, the way people are having sex. But obviously for some young people, this is going to be their first view of what sex is like. Does that concern you as a sex educator? It definitely concerns me because it's much easier to learn than it is to unlearn. You know, violence, explicit, super graphic porn as your first introduction to sex is not going to be super helpful. And there's going to be a lot of unpacking that needs to be done with that. I think it's really important not to shut down the conversation about porn by just going, it's bad, whatever, because there are so many myths about porn that come around. And I have a lot of respect for people who are in the sex industry. I have a lot of friends who are sex workers. So I have a more positive attitude towards porn, which is that it's not ever going to go away. So let's talk to young people. Let's talk to everybody about how to consume it in a way that helps you develop to continue to have a healthy relationship with sex as well as porn and to really break down and think critically about what you are able to access and what you're viewing and why are these the most popular porn categories and why are these the things that are on the homepage of various porn um, tube websites. Um, Those are all the conversations that I think we should be allowing young people to have. But the lines kind of get more blurred because, as you say, the majority of young people who are seeing porn at an early age are not seeking it out for themselves. Many young people don't think to seek out porn, but they stumble across it. And that is becoming so much easier to do with social media. Um, It's just far too easy to accidentally see something you just didn't want to see without ever searching it out. I'm somebody who's really internet literate and I've seen things that I really did not want to see. And it's so easy to do. There are so many people who are trying to post things as their like profile picture or they'll send people awful DMs. It's not a self-contained thing anymore because the internet has kind of created this level playing field where all of this stuff is just available all of the time. And that's the thing that scares me more than anything, to be honest. Let's stick with that theme because obviously your medium for communicating with young people is social media. And we've talked about the algorithm. You have over 400,000 followers on TikTok, but you openly acknowledge, as you just have here, that, that life online is, is not played out or represented in a realistic or authentic way. How do we manage that contradiction? And how, how do you manage it? It's so tricky. Um, and actually, one of your young people asked me a similar question when I was talking um, at Sutton. Um, they asked me, you know, what do you think about online sex ed? And I said, I think it's terrible. Because I really think young people should not be getting their sex ed <laughs> from the internet. And it it really it really baffles me that I am somehow this sex educator to hundreds of thousands of mostly young people. Because they should be getting this stuff at school and they should be able to talk to their parents about it. And there should be, you know, national websites that they can access that they know has reliable and safe information. And then I should just be there to supplement that. But for many of them, I'm introducing subjects for the first time. And that's something that comes from having kind of a worldwide audience. But the majority of people that I talk to are from the UK or the US. So we're not talking about places where sex is particularly taboo, to be honest. In terms of being like authentic online, personally, I am just myself online. I find it exhausting to be anything else. But part of being authentic online for me means not going online when I don't feel good. Um, Whereas I think to other people, being authentic online means posting everything all the time, including when they are having a really rough time. 
that's just how it's worked out for me because I find social media very stressful. I also find it very overwhelming as someone with autism and ADHD. Um, so I have to force myself to have a step back. You know, even that means things like separation, like having two separate phones. Apps like TikTok are particularly addictive. I think they they really have built an algorithm that just gives so many dopamine hits to our brains and we just love them. We love to scroll. And I find that really nerve wracking and scary. But in terms of myself, I do what feels good. And if it doesn't feel good, it's not going up. I'm not going to be online. I'm not going to stay online. Um, but I think in terms of like using social media, the one of the best skills in general that you can teach young people, and really I think there are older generations who need to be taught this too, is to consume media with a critical lens, to not just go on social media, take everything in and not unpack any of it. That is the thing that is harmful about social media, because if you learn how to use it in a way that actually benefits you, it can be such an amazing tool. And I think that I've got to that stage now, but that it has taken me you know, several years of being an internet user in order to kind of get to that point. But I think that's a really important skill that we can all learn. Agreed. Um, you get lots of questions from young people and also from parents. What's your most commonly asked question, would you say? Gosh, this is a hard one. Um, it definitely depends, depending on what kind of content I've posted recently. That changes what the most commonly asked questions are. Most of the questions, interestingly, I get are from queer women who are nervous about having sex for the first time. Um, there are like a lot of expectations that are placed specifically onto sapphics and queer women to have amazing sex because I think we all have in our heads that like, you know, especially like we have the whole porn category of lesbian sex and like there are all these statistics that come out about how much better queer sex is and how much more satisfaction people have. And I've experienced as a queer young person, this pressure that I have to be good and I have to know exactly what to do. Um, and that, you know, women having sex with women are so much better than men having sex with women. And all these things really, I think, have built up and I've given my audience sort of an outlet <laughs> to be able to ask questions about those and to be able to relax a little bit. So I think that's probably the most common question. I mean, besides that, you get a lot of practical questions, things about like, how do I put on a condom? You know, how does emergency contraception work? All those things you kind of expect to come up. But I was more surprised that this question about queer women has come up so much. You could do a PhD on that, I am sure. There's so much there. There is so much there. Do you have any words of wisdom for people listening who are perhaps parents, carers, teachers wanting to broach the topic of sex with their children or young people wanting to seek advice and guidance? So... My best advice for parents is don't have the talk. Don't sit down with your kid and go, today we are going to talk about sex. <laughs> that is so awful. <laughs> the best way that you can have the talk is to have loads and loads and loads of little talks. And that's exactly how my parents did it. Even though I had a genuine interest in sex and relationships, and even though you know, we had this open relationship of being able to talk about everything. And even though I really respect them as people, as well as my parents, we did not have a sit down talk because I would have just been absolutely mortified and they would have clammed up totally because it just, even if you have that open communication, it's still such an awkward scenario to be in. So what I would suggest is use media as a springboard 
for a lot of the conversations that you want to have with your young person. If there are things that are going on in the media, for example, stuff on Love Island, a theme that's come up in that, that can be a really great springboard to go, did you watch that episode or something? Or did you see the article about this? That can then lead to a conversation that is a lot easier to get into than sitting down and going, today I want to talk to you about consent. There might be times where you do need to have that sit down conversation about more serious things, but having those sort of little conversations opens up a line of communication that also makes that conversation less scary because you aren't putting all this pressure on this sit down conversation. You're going, this is something that we can talk about casually. Um, in my mum's case, this is something we can talk about on the train and then everyone can give us weird looks all around us. <laughs> um, so that <laughs> that is a Brilliant. much easier way to have that conversation. And then, like I say, if you're supplementing that with giving books, giving them access to resources, I have loads of resources on my social media pages. There's like a link in my bio where I've listed all my favorite sex education websites and organizations. If you have all of those on hand as well to give them stuff, that takes all that pressure off. Another way to take the pressure off is to admit that you don't know stuff. Because if we still don't have a really functional sex education curriculum now. Parents haven't had that either. And stuff that they may have figured out for themselves may not be the best way for a young person to learn. So admit that you don't know stuff. Admit that you are also learning. And if you can, and this is even better if you have a genuine interest, admit that it's really interesting and exciting and that you're curious about this stuff too. Because I think sort of having that sense of curiosity and excitement is something that, at least with my social media audience, makes them feel a lot more engaged because they're like, oh, actually, yeah, STIs are quite interesting. Like, there's so many of these things. And like, and I'm like a genuine like nerd about sexual health. So I'm like, don't you think it's interesting, all these things about chlamydia and about... And that definitely makes them feel more relaxed themselves. But if I had to give a piece of advice to a young person, all of these things with sex and relationships need to be a positive addition to your life. And if they are not a positive addition to your life, then you need to re-evaluate your relationship with them and you need to rethink why that might be everything in sex and relationships. If they do not feel positive, that can be changed. That is not set in stone. And if they do feel truly negative, you can always say no and stop and step back and go, well, maybe I'm already sexually active, but actually it's not feeling super good for me. I'm going to take a step back and think about why that is and just take a break for a bit. And that's absolutely fine. I just want young people to have this like, idea that they always have choices and that if something doesn't feel good it's okay to choose to not engage with it that's absolutely fine definitely and I I think that the idea of the multiple first times comes into its own in that regard that you can you know you can do something you can have sex but then you can step back and you can start again in a way that feels more comfortable to you yeah absolutely and I think that mindset definitely has helped a lot of people whose first times were negative experiences to go well, that was one of them. And then I had other first times that were way more enjoyable. And you can kind of break that down and that can give you kind of a healthier attitude towards sex in the future rather than all your experiences being marred by one bad experience. Wow, Millie, thank you so much. I'm just going to add one more um, uh, word of wisdom, which is that um, anybody listening who does not already follow Millie on TikTok should now follow Millie on TikTok. (laughs) Thank you. So Millie Evans, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I do hope that we will work together again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So if you aren't already, you can follow Millie on TikTok at It's Millie Evans and you can buy her book, Honest, Everything They Don't Tell You About Sex, Relationships and Bodies now. 
Well, who knew that at the ripe old age of 46, um, I could still learn so much about such a fundamental topic as sex. Um, I will actually really take on board what she said about um, how you speak to your kids about this and, and how you don't sit down and have the sex talk. And I found it oddly uh, empowering to speak to her. I'm sure that many people find that their first time is not the beautiful orchestra accompanied experience that um, Hollywood movies um, tell them that it's going to be. And in that regard, I think that the idea of having multiple first times is an incredibly moving, but also really empowering way of viewing that. And for that, I'm really, really grateful to her. Join me on the next episode of Razor Up when for Children's Mental Health Week, I will be with GP and mental health expert, Dr. Lee David. You get your anxious part, or you get your critic part and they pipe up all the time. And I like the idea of kind of shrinking apart so that it has less power, but not trying to kick it out. Because in a way, as soon as you're trying to kick a part out, you're actually putting more effort into keeping that part silent. And actually they all bring some value. You know, your anxious part is the part that keeps you safe and stops you from taking crazy risks. I'll see you then. And I think again, one of I the thought what's going through her, that's what we're giving, isn't it? As a parent, we're giving our love. <laughs> Raise her up.